Hello and welcome to University Challenge with me, your host, Tony Kent. Today's guest is Darren Timmins, CTO at Intuita, an organization dedicated to finding value in data and driving positive change. In today's episode, he shares how an early love of engineering, plus the opportunity to participate in an academy at the National Coal Board, put him on a path that saw him witness some of the biggest moments in the evolution of technology. From the birth of the internet to automated warehouses, Darren has been deeply involved in applying the latest tech to a wide range of industries and has now turned his talents to how we deal with software that tells us it knows the answer. To learn more about the Intuitor Academy, which provides training that is free at the point of access, please visit intuitorconsulting.com slash Hi, Darren. Welcome to University Challenged. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm feeling zen. All of the admin that was happening before this call is done. The panic is over. Um, where are you right now? Out of interest, just to be nosy? I am at home in a village just east of Peterborough. Right, okay. So I am in a village just north of Newbury. So we're opposite ends of the country, aren't we? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, indeed. Right. So we've had a bit of a chat before this. I know a bit about you. Got some good people in common. But for the listeners today and the listeners to come, uh, could you tell me what your full name is? And what it is that you do today? Darren Timmins, and I um, am graduately called the CTO, Chief Technology Officer of Intuita. Um, mm-hmm. When in reality, I actually look after primarily research and design. Okay. And what do Intuita do? What's what's your line of business? Intuita is a data company. Um, data is a very broad spectrum, but primarily breaks into three, which is product and technology, um, our academy, and consultancy. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and again, out of interest, because now I'm curious, who would who would come to Intuita? Because you've got quite a broad range there, as you say. You've got your academy. You've got your In terms of people who want to work there or customers? Customers. What sort of is there, are there specific industries that you would work with or that yeah. you're attractive to? So um, the consultant side is primarily focused in three verticals, which would be gaming and telecommunications and financial services, although we do do work in retail, et cetera. But that's our primary primary markets. In terms of products, we aim very much at simplifying um, processes and tools to make it easy to use and, and try and abstract some of the complexity of modern day interfaces. And then the academies um, obviously pitched at helping people get into the data industry. Brilliant. So if we go back in time a little bit, what are your memories of secondary school? What were you like before you came to be where you are today? Uh, secondary school for me was absolutely fantastic process. Um, I loved it. So I was a bit of a sport billy when I was much younger and, and I school was very focused on sport as well as trying to help those who wanted to be academically minded move forward. And, yeah. and it was the mid-80s and electronics was all the rage and the government decided in their infinite wisdom to create new courses based around electronics, which yeah. fortunately I got picked for. So that gave quite a diverse um, 
curriculum to what everybody else is doing. So like all of our study, regardless of the subject, was focused towards electronics, which is quite nice. And, and what would that have looked like? Because if I think about electronics, I think about circuit boards. But that's because that's just me. Um, how, how was the curriculum tailored yeah. towards getting you or, yeah, keeping you interested yeah. and active in that area? The, the maths was very focused in physics. Was that? But even um, English language was more focused towards the business aspects of it. So we did things like write CVs and how to write letters to apply for jobs and how to do video presentations even back then. Um, wow. So, yeah, there was a lot of focus on doing things around um, business, I guess. Wow. I was just playing Granny's Garden on the one BBC computer <laughs> that the school had. Yeah, we didn't have many either. No. Um, okay, so you, when you came to take your exams at secondary school, uh, what did you do and how did you get on? I think I did eight in total or nine. I think I got four A's, a couple of B's, the rest were C's. Yeah. Didn't pay much attention to languages, unfortunately. Okay. Oh, you know, I don't know it's hindered you, has it? I don't think so. Um, I think the the fact that a lot of what I did was tailored towards being a part of a business or working with businesses yeah. was a great help, to be fair. And so when you've got your sort of brace of, although I don't know how many is in a brace because I don't go shooting, um, A's and B's and C's, although I have got two gun dogs. Um, <laughs> Uh, where did that sort of leave you? What did your careers advisor or your teachers recommend that you did next? And did you follow their advice? Um, so I went to college to do A-level electronics. That was because school didn't um, didn't do electronics. They were still in the classical six-form mode. Yeah. It was part of that. I did maths and physics. Yeah. I absolutely hated college. Did right. nothing for me whatsoever. Um, although it didn't come out there too bad, I just I got to a point in my life where I was nearing the end of wanting to be force-fed information and yeah. a bit more on the year. Uh, can I make something happen for myself? So yeah, it was a bit of a frustrating time. Maybe it would have been the same if I'd have stayed at sixth form. But yeah, and the advice was go to university, you'll do brilliant. And my response was not even going to bother to apply because I had no interest whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, did you um did you complete your A levels at college? I did. Yep. You did. Okay. All right. And so that was <laughs> your next step was you have to go to university, but you did not want to. No. So I I literally had no interest at all. Um, I'd, I'd done my time. To be fair. And what was the advice to you then when you've kind of said I don't want to go? What What did the college? How did they help <laughs> you take your next step? I had a couple of, well, I was assigned to the physics thing as from a tutor point of view, and um, both of the senior physics lecturers uh, gave me the same advice, was you'll never amount to anything. Uh, wow. Okay. Which, uh, maybe it was a driving force, I don't know. Mm. Maybe they were right, I don't know, in that score either. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? How, um, I don't know. You think that they are centred on helping the young person to 
well, it's probably realize your full potential now um, instead of telling you never amount to anything. So what did you do then? They obviously weren't going to help you. Uh, what was your next step? Um, so bizarrely, I was working in the um, warehouse at Marks and Spencer's in Dudley, of all places. And um, the foreman there was, his wife was a, an analyst for the Ministry of Defence, and he was encouraging me to not forgive the, for, forgo the electronic stream, but that actually computing was probably a better place to be, and there was lots of opportunity. Right. And so as a result of his encouragement, I applied for, for a few jobs, but obviously not as a computer programmer, because for most of that, you had to have a degree. So mm -hmm. I applied for various jobs. And then I got a response from British Coal, of all places, I think where yeah. I had applied to be on the call centre, bizarrely, yeah. um, because they, they did a lot of work in um, FPOS in the early days. I was in Creek Coal Machine Polar. Ah, they had a help yeah. desk. And then yeah. I applied for that. And then I went to Tenerife for a couple of weeks with the lads. And then I got back and... The first paragraph was like, we've refused your application, to which I nearly ripped it up. But I read the yeah. second bit, which was, we'd love to apply, for, we'd love for you to come and interview for a job as a training computer programmer, which was completely bizarre. Right. So I went and did an aptitude test and a few um, interviews. Mm. And then bizarrely, at the end of it, got off me. Okay. Which really was surrounded by grads in the interview process. Yeah. But there was a couple of us. Our mutual friend, Mr. Westworth, was one of those. Yeah. And it transpired that they'd had a few few streams. I think these took three or four streams a year. Yeah. And they'd had a number of streams where they hadn't found the people that they wanted. So they decided to take a few, few air level students and put them in the mix, see what happened. And that's quite interesting. Do you have any sense now of what it was that potentially was missing that they found with the likes of you and and the famous Mr. Westworth? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, I think it was enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure British Coal would have been the first stop for, for many grads. And no. probably that was what was happening. You know, it was obviously... In, in a reasonable amount of decline by the time I got there in the late 80s. So mm. and it, fortunes weren't exactly, you know, they was going to give you a, a fantastic future moving forward. So I think yeah. it's a number of things, but I think that probably played into it quite a lot. Yeah. And what, um, out of interest, what, what kind of programmes were you learning to write and develop? What did that look like? Yeah, so British Coal was... Um, mainframe shop, so IBM mainframe, um, and it was pretty much all COBOL at the time. So okay, every yeah. programmer was COBOL, <laughs> either with DR1 or DB2 or VSUN. Show my age now. Very yeah. Well, you've got to know the classic acronyms, is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> veteran, that's what you get to call yourself now. I'm mm -hmm. a veteran. Um, old, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or old, or old. Um, so but what were the programs doing within? Because I would never have thought of British Coal kind of, I don't know, having a great deal of investment in that kind of technology infrastructure. <laughs> it goes to show how much um, I know. I think British Coal had gone into it quite hard in the 60s, I mean, well before I ever got there. Um, yeah, and I mean, when I was there, it was used for, for everything from doing mining and technical to the amount of 
going on because obviously British Coal was a pretty big organisation back then. Yeah. And um, payroll. Uh, yeah. So there's quite a few departments. And then the spare capacity was where I worked, which originally was called external, which was any other company we could sell to. But by the time I got there, mm-hmm. it basically become a brand of its own called Compo, which we ah. sold basically services to big retail customers and as well as we were doing work for some of the banks. So it was basically trialing new things and, and credit card payments obviously become electronic yeah. around that time and British yeah. Coal through Compower was polled in about 70% of all transactions at the time. So wow. what I mean by that is they were, you know, credit card adoption came through supermarkets and, and petrol stations predominantly yeah. originally. Um, so overnight we would dial those up and get the cards and then process them and then split the transactions and then send tapes as they were then on couriers to Visa and MasterCard at Southend and Northampton. I'd be stood there with a little pizza box to give the bloke to get on his little (laughs) motorbike and fizz off down the motorway at five o'clock on an evening. Yeah, it it wasn't the uh, height of technological advancement that it is today, but it worked. I did hear, um, I mean, this is showing my age, there's a Trevor and Simon sketch where they say the internet is run by a pixie minicab service. It sounds a bit it like was, that. Yeah, it was <laughs> was very similar. It was, um, yeah, there was a lot of, not necessarily smoke and mirrors, but you know, putting in lease lines and things like that at that time, quite expensive. Right. Although we did move to that quite quickly after. Yeah. And what did that sort of do for you? Like you say, you kind of came in as part of a cohort of A-level students, so non-grad, um, and you're getting to do some quite interesting, exciting stuff. Um, did that, is that quite a sort of, I uh, can't think of the right word, sort of pivotal moment in your early career? Did it, you know, create oh, definitely. that? I was fortunate to work, to work with some very talented people. We had a very limited amount of resource. Everybody had to pull their weight. So you were sort of, um, you were in a situation where you had you had to swim. There was no chance of sinking and nobody really had the time mm. to put too much into you. So you had to learn for yourself and get on with it. You know, people were more than happy to help, but they were busy as well. So we did loads of overtime. We did lots of interesting stuff. Mm. And that was all against the backdrop of, you know, we knew one day and not too soon in the future that coal board would get privatised or broken up. Um, yeah. So I think that also helps to focus the mind because, you know, at some point you're going to have to find another job. You're not there for life like some people were. So, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting time. And mm. um, um, where did you go from there then? What, I guess, a couple of questions. What preempted your move from British coal and where did you go? Um, so what preempted my move? Yeah, I mean, by this time, British Coal was sort of in its death throes. It was starting to be broken up. There was little chance of doing anything else. The the uh, senior management were less than supportive. Um, so anyway, we uh, you know what? there was many of us who decided that it was time to move on. And I was sort of in the middle of that batch, I think. So I ended up Went to work for another brand that's named probably defunct, which was Pearl Assurance in Peterborough. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. And so that because I remember they used to come door to door to collect the money. Yeah. My family had 
an assurance for a little while. Um, and what did you do there? What stands out for you about the time that you spent there? Um, I think it was probably the first time obviously gone to a new company, had a lot of experience. The first time you noticed that you know people were coming and asking directly for your input on, on things and mm. um, being involved more and more in the design of things so and started to move into that sort of area. So not just technical competence anymore, but also around design and architecture. That was interesting. And obviously the world was moving on, but I know it's the mid-90s and desktop technology was becoming more prevalent. And, you know, everything was sort of changing and the mainframe was heavily into its descent towards obscurity, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and um, did you get a sense of... The question for me is, sort of, at what point do people, and actually this is something that I wonder, when you are really technically competent, are you likely to be asked about your qualifications or not? Is it based on the projects that you've delivered? I, I wonder if there is such an emphasis on, have you got a computer science degree, for example? Well, there was certainly a lot of that in the early days. Um, equally. The stuff we were doing with FPOS was sort of quite niche. So mm -hmm. it sort of negated a lot of those questions. But in an average interview, you were certainly asked about what degree you got, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was a challenge then. And it wasn't, it was very much perceived that, um, and it was true of the way, the way we dressed as well, that it was a very much a white collar job. You wore a okay. suit to work and, you know, there was no dress down Fridays or certainly jeans wasn't a thing it was classed as a profession and, and they wanted their grads to that as well so yeah mm. I, I was definitely in the minority by a big mm. long way mm. it's really it's interesting no dress down no dress down friday so when i was at microsoft actually the mark of someone who was mm. technically expert was to be the one who was in casual dress not in a suit and tie. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this is just because this was, you know, it was an insurance company. And but to yeah. be fair, throughout the nineties, I think if you worked in IT, you were expected to wear a suit. Yeah, and there were very few that, that fought against that. Maybe the PC boys did. I can't remember. But yeah. <laughs> we were meant to be the professionals, whatever that means. <laughs> the PC boys. Yeah. Um, and so from Pearl, what happened from there? Went out a few happy years at RS Components. That was really good. We were commissioning new warehouses, and it was all like um, high tech at the time. So a lot of German technology was going in there. Remote control forklifts and fully automated cranes, and you know, there's a lot of robotics. And it, for me, it was brilliant because I got to do the comms, which meant that I got basically a giant train kit to play with. Ah. Best part of three years. So that was all good, and it was. It was a great set of people, and it's you know we started on site when it was just like the frame of a building, and then all yeah. the way through to to commissioning the warehouse and then post that. So, and it was wow. quite advanced in its day. So, probably not very advanced anymore, given what Amazon have done to the logistics industry. But yeah, this was a lot of fun. 
and it was real because for once it wasn't just about writing programs that did something electronic it was about things moved in a warehouse and things moved yeah. down a track and all of a sudden that side of programming became real so it was interesting very interesting and did you see experience any difference in the sort of makeup of the people that that worked there because because the the because the work was different. Yes, I mean, I'm, in terms of the warehousing side of it, you know, people from across all spectrum. It, it was, um, yeah, I think I was told to turn up there in a suit and I didn't because the place was just so dusty and there was no way I was ruining a good suit for, no. to sit in a warehouse full of dust. So, yeah, that's where my um, love affair of dress down every day came about. <laughs> it was a yeah. shock when I went back to after wear a suit to be fair. Yeah. I, I, I need to I need to know though, did you own a pair of uh steel toe cap boots if you're on a on a side? It was regulation, yeah. I had a lovely mm. pair of boots that um, almost became part of me over that three years <laughs> Um so you built your warehouses, they're fully automated, cranes are operating themselves. Uh what yeah. happens next? I actually went back to Pearl, but now Pearl was part of Australian Mutual Provident. I ended up doing a few different big projects for them, which was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but then AMP sort of maybe got a bit too excited in the UK market and probably tried to push Pearl as a brand too hard from a penny policy point of view into mortgages and, uh, and other aspects. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And AMP went back to Australia at some point, and, and Pearl as a brand faded away. So I left. <laughs> um, and just throughout this process, what was it that was driving your decisions on the roles that you wanted to take and where you wanted to work? Was there, uh, well, I could just leave that question there. Actually, what did you have an endpoint in mind? I think at that point I did. I think I definitely wanted to get more and more into design aspects of the whole project, project or program. And certainly that's where I went with Pearl. I ended up taking ownership of a lot of building design, which was good, um, but still staying technical. So one of my peers was becoming just more and more architects, as you'd be called today, I guess. Yeah. I was still um, designing stuff and then getting involved with the So. Which was a bit unusual for the wrong. Yeah. More sergeant major than general, let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> um, so you said you you went, you left Pearl again a second time, or AMP. Uh does that bring you to Intuitor? No, it doesn't. It takes me out of the mainframe world enough to urge money when it was a startup. So oh, wow. bizarrely, it was part owned by AMP but, um, right. in the early days. <laughs> so I needed to retrain because it was becoming obvious that obviously the mainframes were no longer uh, on vogue. So mm. I got offered the chance to effectively learn on the job at um, Virgin Money, which yeah. was... Um, it was an interesting experience. So I'm to learn about server-based technologies and getting into Java and all that good stuff. It was it was 
probably took longer than it should have done. Mm. Because I've been so ingrained in all the tenets of doing mainstream. I've got a slight judder there, in fact. So tell me about Virgin Money then. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about going to Virgin Money was the ability to to retrain in what was new technologies at the time. So become very ingrained in my way in mainframes and, and what Virgin Money offered was the chance to go and work at a startup. Mm-hmm. But once I wasn't the youngest person in the room, all of a sudden I was one of the oldest. Um, and having yeah. to now learn new technologies and work with some very inspiring and talented young developers was a person who great for me at the time um, and it taught me a whole new branch of of technology as well which was good so I enjoyed that and, and then eventually the time came to, to move on from there so and a quick question on the culture of Virgin Money was it because I remember when Virgin Mobile first came out and I'm thinking oh god it's really fun and uh, a friend interviewed to be cabin crew at Virgin Atlantic and everything just seemed to be, you know, fun and young people and everyone's welcome. But is that what it was actually like? So I worked for a couple of Virgin companies. Virgin Money was definitely like that in its early days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we it was very fun, very hard working, mm. a lot of togetherness. We, we went out together um, on a weekly basis to have a few beers. It was like that, just what you expect the Virgin Ethos to be. Oh, right. So why did you leave? Why did you go, Darren? <laughs> um, I ended up in some interesting tech companies that got acquired by various telcos over the next few years. Um, one of them was a company called Video Networks, which was basically a forerunner for Netflix. It was just too early. And again, that taught me a lot about different aspects of um design and making things hyper efficient so that was really good and then eventually ended up at virgin media running Mm -hmm. the data department there which wasn't anything like a virgin company because obviously it had been telewest and ntl um, before that oh okay yeah um and again the culture was the culture but i met so many fantastic people at vm um who are still in touch with today, and in fact, quite a few of Intuita is ex-Virgin Media as well. There were some absolutely talented people. And then again, that comes back to the, the mentality of the different companies that ended up being part of NTL and Telewest on the fact that it was a proper network and a proper telco. Mm. Um, yeah, and people have been trained properly and they were very committed to doing the job that they did. And how did your experiences influence your approach to and hiring people or you know looking for the people that you wanted to work with? So my approach has always been the same. If if you're good enough, you're good enough. I'm never really bothered about whether you know somebody has has the right paperwork or even um, what their age or background is. You know, mm. it takes a wonderful blend of people to make a very good team and you know from everybody from the most dynamic to to, to the folks who are more consistent in their daily output 
and then everybody's viewpoint tends to create a better design anyway. So I think it's good if you can create an open atmosphere where everybody can contribute regardless of necessarily what their academic background is. Yeah. And that's creating a better team is about, you know, not about prima donnas or whatever. I'm not saying that anybody has a degree as a prima donna, far from it, but um I think it just takes a blend so that everybody's grounded to the same level and everybody yeah. learns something out of it as well. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Just making some notes here. Um, so where, because it, it seems like we've got the link now to Intuitor, VM people. Um, how does Intuitor come to life or come into your life? And so Intuitor started around the time I was actually at Virgin Media. Mm -hmm. And my major customer at Virgin Media left to found Intuitor. Mm -hmm. So we already had a working relationship. Um, after I left Virgin Media, and we kept in touch. And any time they needed infrastructure work to being done or design work being done, they'd get in contact and I'd do that on a part-time basis for them because the business was primary, primarily centered then around the consultancy, which was yeah. not really my thing. Um, and then eventually a few years later, they decided that they wanted to um, branch out uh, and expand the range of services offered across the, the whole database. And, and therefore we needed to look at technology and, and also products. So they got in touch and they made me an offer that I could refuse in mean, that nicest sense of the way. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, despite it not being the greatest offer I've ever received, I decided to take it because I knew how good they were. And yeah, yeah, all part of the fun and working with yeah. some great people. Yeah. Um, and so it talked to me about the um, sort of academy part of what you do. Um, because I think that's something that. It's really interesting and maybe speaks to your experiences. We spoke about it um, prior to the prior to this session, where you coming into uh, British coal, um, it felt like there may be a kind of correlation between the two. Well, there definitely is, and I'm certainly not the first ex coal board employee to to try and help instigate an academy. Certainly been. Mm. Folks like Rob Malaban, Robert Crimson in, in Birmingham have, have done something similar in recent years. I think mm. the fact that we came through an academy and we were taught, you know, good values and how to work, and as well as the technical side of it, um, and looked after, and the fact that we were given an opportunity when most others would not have given us an opportunity, mm. means that somehow it's our chance to give back. And then, you know, after talking to the guys at Intuitor and then working out where there could be opportunity. And equally playing into the point where I think computing, especially in one sense, in terms of data science, has gone far too theoretical for what most companies want to do with it. And having had some um, some interns who didn't have the skills that we would have liked, but yet that's the courses that universities are, uh, are teaching, was that actually in order to make people fit for work, if you like, we would have to create our own academy and, and and basically train people the way we saw fit, which was to train them in a business environment, not in a theoretical environment. Because as great as the theory is, 
very few companies are anywhere near where the theory is. So yeah. part of the, the academy is not just teaching those technical skills, but equally the politics of data and the personas that you come across and why people act the way they do and how people deliberately misinterpret data, etc. Yeah. So it aims to be very rounded and, and give people yeah. the ability to start work in a job with mm. um, at least an understanding of their skills, if not sorry, fully um fully cognizant of, of what those skills are. At the end of the day, it's a bit like driving lessons. You know, you take driving lessons, you get to pass your test, but you're not really a driver until you've got years of experience under your belt. But it's getting to that point, yeah. basically. Yeah, well, I, that's such a good analogy as well, because I wasn't once taken to a petrol station as part of my driving <laughs> lessons. And and it is as a whole, there's a group of us, like me and my friends, we're like, like the horror of going, what do you mean we have to fill it up? We've never been taught, um, but we had passed our driving test, which is frightening, frankly. Never been, never been to a multi-story car park either. Um, I mean, I have now, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, just a few times. Yeah, just a few times. I normally have, you know, a chauffeur. Um, so, how does your academy work? Where do you find your people? How do you bring them through, and where do they go afterwards? So our academies at the moment are pretty much based in Croatia. There's, there's a long and boring story that's associated to that. But um, in order to trial what we wanted to do, we looked at doing the UK market. Um, it's very difficult to start an academy in the UK and get the opportunities. So um, our friend of mine who used to run sales for EMEA has now got a vineyard just down the road from this place in Croatia that was trying to redevelop from an old steel town into a modern technology centre. And they've been helping out with that. And um, investment funds have been put in to allow people to do um, academy work while still getting paid. So they receive an income and the course is free at the point of access, which is our primary thing to try and do. Yeah. And then the course basically runs for six months. We have five half days of classroom time a week. And then on the side of that, we've built a simulated environment for them to work with data in a given context. So the current course that's running is all centered around telecommunications companies. So the, the data sets that they work on are simulated um, versions of what you would get in a corporate telco and the volumes of the data they have to work with are the same. So rather than working with a 50,000 line data set, they're working with billions of rows of data. So, so again, you know, it's not that wow. theoretical um, thing. It's about this is a real environment. Again, yeah. the challenges they get set up, business challenges, and then the personas that are involved will disrupt those challenges in, as what happens in a real-world scenario. So, yeah, it's... It's our take on it, and it's a little bit interesting, but the primary things yeah. are around opportunity and equally yeah. giving it to those that uh, can't necessarily afford to do. So the, this current course, for example, that's running at the moment is a, I just can't remember, it's 25 or 30 people. But the age range and, and the backgrounds of these people is, is hugely diverse, and that's been true of the ones we've done before. Yeah. 
Did you say that you had people come through that were ex-firefighters and... Yeah, so the last um, academy we were involved with, we had, um, who we've taken on as permanent staff, were, were from a variety of backgrounds, be that McDonald's or um, firefighting or yeah. whatever else, game development. So it's, again, it comes back to the fact that if you're good enough, you're good enough doesn't matter yeah. what happened before. It's about how you can apply yourself to a situation. Um, yeah. Um, I just love that idea. I'm just, and I'm quoting you, and if you're good enough, you're good enough. Um, but the idea that, like you say, I, I know in that kind of like cybersecurity space, there are, like you can have these whole is it pen testing scenarios where you bring yeah. the exec team into a room and then you scare the living daylights out of them by putting them through mm -hmm. a simulation. Um, and I just think that that you, you know, you do prepare people for the actual real world of someone's coming in. They're going to try and completely ruin your efforts because they've got this going on. Um, and people stay, so they, they're going to go to the workplace and not run out screaming, hopefully. Yeah, I think we, we, we do sit down with them and explain at the start that this is very intense Yeah. Um, and that they need to want to do it and there will be periods where they might not see the wood for the trees. And, you know, I was with this particular course last week and I was trying to explain to them that, you know, it doesn't matter that it doesn't all make sense at this point. But over time, it will start to make sense. And then, you know, the whole point of the, the academy is that it's constant reinforcement. And then eventually the penny will drop. And, you know, yeah. it might not be till week 12. But as long as they're prepared to absorb information and understand it and, and keep plodding away, then that's much like the data world is. You know, there's no real rules in in our world. And people will ask you to solve problems or understand problems or... In many cases, if they're a politician, give you the answer to the problem that they've already given the answer to. So it just depends. But there's no hard and fast rules. Like programming is you start with a problem and you solve that problem. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Data is normally we've got a problem with this data and then somebody asks a question and then you realise there's another question and then you scratch away and there's another question. And, and before you know, you've started to drift away from what the original problem was and you've now found 15 others. And it's how do you deal with that? And how do you bring that back to somebody and say, actually, you know, this data's probably not as good as you thought it was. We need to do this, this, and this in a business context. And it may may be fundamental to a lot of decisions that are going on. So Yeah, and to to what extent do you think that we have a gap in those skills, given that now every company is a data company? There's a huge gap at the moment. I think, you know, if anything reinforces the, the tiny little bit that we're doing is uh, Amazon, for example, announced in November, I think it was, that they are pouring a fortune into education around data in the US. Mm. Um, and not to deliver through universities, but to deliver through community colleges, etc. So there is a huge dearth of talent across the planet. Um, right. Obviously, the the, the downside to learning from a vendor rather than a neutral is you get their vendor bias, mm -hmm. which is a challenge in the data thing because you try and teach people to understand bias. Yes. Because it's inherent everywhere, but you have to try and create a, some sort of understanding of where your bias sits. Yeah. 
and you want a bit of critical thinking to go alongside that definitely and it's that yeah that need to be sort of independent even if you can't affect the outcome of what you've discovered yeah that's fascinating i didn't know that about amazon um mm, yeah but there and is just a massive a skills gap worldwide yeah mm. yeah um so What's next? I mean, you've you've got quite a lot going on, it would seem. Have you got a kind of grand plan or anything you feel comfortable sharing that you're working on for the future? Yeah, there's some interesting aspects. I think the whole chat GPT thing over the last few months has proven that AI is certainly now moving in the right direction and that the uh, I can't remember what the Ghana the Ghana hype cycle has what is it the trough of disillusionment maybe it's mm-hmm. it's ex, it's exiting that period of its life cycle and there's some certainly some interesting things in that AI world mm-hmm. and I think one of the next challenges will be is how do you evaluate one AI against another because again not one AI will give you potentially as a corporate everything that you want mm-hmm. um, and nor should it. And how do you, how much like when you do a vendor process, do you um, challenge different AIs depending on what you're trying to achieve? So I think there's a lot in that space in terms of, and certainly in the, um, even more into the fraud detection side of it, you know, as you say about pen testing and whatever, there's some really interesting use cases across all aspects of um, all aspects of that sphere. And again, the data you feed it, it is key to that. So it has been proven in previous um, projects by the, the big um, technology companies. These yeah. these AIs have become incredibly biased incredibly quickly because they've been on the open internet. ChatGPT yeah. has been trained in a mass amount of data, but in theory, a lot less biased than it would find on the internet. Um, and it will be interesting to see how businesses react to that, whether they can find enough data. I read something the other day that AI could run out of data within three years. Not sure what that means, but it was a headline again. So, again, there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of misnomer around this. So, to me, it's demystifying it and putting it back in the hands of people and decision makers, much like we try and teach on the academy, which is, what does this data actually mean? Or what does this information actually mean? Because obviously data is nothing without context. And what does it mean yeah. in context and all that good stuff? So again, it's there are lots of wonderful new technologies out there. It's just how you use them for the greater good. Yeah. And I did on that chat GPT point, I looked at OpenAI's website because I thought, mm. who are these people? Um, and it said it was about you know, AI for the common good and to solve problems that humanity has. I thought, okay. Um, but I thought, well, how do I even know? How do I even know who owns this company and who is behind it and and what the intentions actually are? And then I got it to write some copy for me, which was all in American English, and I felt very smug. <laughs> I thought, you can't spell organization the way that I want it to be spelt. But um, it was... Very, yeah. no, go ahead, go ahead. 
Yeah, the point you made there is about AI is it's very difficult to get it to justify why it thinks what it does. Mm. And that is huge when it comes to using it in an operational process for a corporate because you want to know it's going to react. Yeah. Not necessarily that something's going to trip it and it's going to start going off on its own tangent, doing things that it thinks it needs to pull back on. Yeah. So understanding the algorithms that operate behind it is actually, I know that's defeating the object in some sense, but there needs to be an element of predictability to make it work properly. Mm. I know it's a counter argument to itself, but yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought if it's going to run yeah. out of data, it's just going to eat itself. Is that it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it was just utter rubbish. But again, it could have been ChatGPT that wrote that. You don't know. And this, <laughs> I think that's another another potential opportunity for somebody out there to try and work out what was generated by these AI platforms and what isn't. Yeah. Oh, wow. So your work clearly isn't done yet, Darren. <laughs> no. I think it's just... It's just about bringing a bit of honesty back to, you know, the, the, yeah. the whole industry, the technology industry for years has been surrounded by a huge amounts of marketing hype. Um, but I do think AI is getting there. And then it's how do you weld AI to account, basically. Mm. You can't just let it run amok. No. And it'd be interesting to see how how people react to it in general. It's one thing folks in the tech industry looking at it. It's another thing when it comes down to impacting folks outside of it yeah well i was thinking one of the ways in which just as a lay person i remember like with my children they're they're kind of taught at school don't use wikipedia as your reference point or, or follow the citations figure out where it's from and i find we have to do a lot of that with our teenagers it is that how do you know it's true? Where did it come from? What's the source? How can you tell? How do you check your facts? So I guess it, there's a lot of that, isn't there? I think so. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who disagree. Um, but mm-hmm. I think you've got to be, you need to understand why the decision was made as much as the fact that the decision was made. Mm. I think it makes any difference to what happens today with corporates, I'm not so sure anyway. But I, no. Um, and then in terms of like the academy, have you got a sense of like a, a long-term aspiration for where that's going to go? Definitely. We were talking to quite a number of different people about rolling it out across different countries. Mm-hmm. There's a huge untapped market, we believe, in, in sort of LAM, um, whether it be Mexico or down into yeah. South America, obviously. Yeah. There's a huge number of initiatives that are happening across Africa as well. It would be good to be involved in some of that at some point. But, yeah, it's finding the right partners um, and the right people and then and critically getting it free at the point of access so people yeah. can actually do it rather than have to incur debt to do it, which, yeah. again, seems like a corporate moneymaker rather than a, an education yeah. thing to me. But, again, maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but... Well, and and there's the argument, isn't it, about that free at the point of access, because it shouldn't give you a life of debt. No, very much so. Get an education so that you can contribute to the economy. (laughs) Well, I I sort of understand the principle behind it. Mm -hmm. 
but I think you know, there's been a lot of talk about democratizing data over the years, and mm. you know, it needs to be the same empowerment. If you understand it, then maybe it's better for everybody. And the more you understand about data, the reason the more you understand why things are the way they are, you know, why certain taxes might be too low, why certain taxes might be too high, whatever it may be. Mm. But you get a better understanding of of what you're being fed. Yeah. And then just that as an education, it's a good thing. And then from there, if you can get a career out of it as well, and even better. And just for anyone who's listening that may be thinking that they would like a career in data, but uni is not for them, what would you recommend they do? Very good question. Um, I think the principles are about understanding logic first and foremost. So there, there are many courses out there, but you know, honestly, get in touch with us at Intuit and we can point you in the right direction. There's so many different disciplines in data, be that from you know analysis to science to um, data engineering to architecture, whatever. That, yeah. you know, there's something there for everybody. Even the artists in the data visualization world, I mean, there's some really funky methods coming, but well, been around for a few years now. So it's it's just having that critical mind and then the ability to to help others work as a team and, and get the best out of that data, whatever it may be. And I think, you know, talk to us at Intuit or ping me on LinkedIn or do whatever. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time today, Jared. I think that's the widest ranging conversation. We've gone all the way out to AI and back again. Um, I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. 